1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Suzanne Cope about her new book, Power Hungry, Women of the Black Panther Party and Freedom Summer and Their Fight to Feed a Movement, published by Lawrence Hill Books and Chicago Review Press out in November 2021. Suzanne Cope is a writing professor at NYU who's been researching and writing about food and politics for years. Her articles have been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Travel and Leisure, as well as with the BBC, CNN, BuzzFeed, NPR, and more. She discusses related topics on radio shows and podcasts and at numerous professional and scholarly meetings. Welcome to the podcast, Suzanne. It is a pleasure to be speaking with you.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your academic and professional backgrounds. How did you come to be interested in writing about food uh, and especially about women and the civil rights struggle?
0: Sure. I was I had I earned my MFA in um uh, before I earned my PhD, and I was writing a lot, as we often do, about our grandmothers and our history. And I am Italian American in part, and I was really connected to that part of my uh, of my background. And so I was writing a lot of these interesting stories, stories that are interested to me. And then um, when I went back for my PhD, and I started doing more research, it kind of connected in my mind that um, research would add depth to some of the stories that I was already interested in telling. And also, I think I was becoming, I was getting a little older, I was becoming less, you know, inward focused. And I started thinking about these interesting stories that needed to be told beyond my own. Um, and so I got interested in food studies, the academic uh, side of um, of writing about food, And that really got me um, a great grounding in thinking about systemic issues around food access and thinking about how culture is perpetuated through food. And, um, And so I started doing some more academic work around food studies. And then I, and that informed my first book, a small batch. But then I wanted to come back to the more personal narrative writing. And so it was great when I started working at NYU a couple of years ago. uh, I just felt this freedom to really find a project that I was excited about. And I had had different food narrative projects that I was interested in. And I had book proposals, and I had an amazing agent who was um, helping to get them out in the world. But, um, you know, nothing had quite the right timing as books often need to have. and then um and then I started to research uh, a little more around Aline, and that the story just resonated with me. Here are these stories, her story. But then, of course, there's so many others too, that just, um, were footnotes to history, and it started with me looking at um, looking for women who were using food in in some sort of way to um, support political and social change, and it really led to uh, a deep dive into her story, um, connecting it to. Um, the Black Panther Party, and uh, and I have so many other similar stories that I just can't wait to get out into the world as well. And it was really great to be able to tell the story in a narrative way, in a way that felt really accessible to people, but also help these these people come alive on the page. And so that's very much my goal is to move away from um, some of the academic work um, that I had been doing in the past and and write something that was really engaging and and super readable. Uh, so that's where this book, um, that was the birth of this book.
1: Yeah, I, I think that you you really hit uh, that balance between there there are definitely some things there for an academic audience, and we can talk about those a little bit later. But absolutely, that narrative structure uh, and the way you kind of weave these two stories together, I think, has the accessibility that you were looking for. Uh, tell me a little bit more about why this book right now. You you describe a meeting with Curtis Muhammad um, around the twenty sixteen election. Uh, uh, and and kind of some audiences you had in
0: mind. Say a little bit more about that. Sure, these particular stories came out of um, a previous. I, I guess it was more of a collection of stories. Um, I became, as so many people in uh, 2016, uh, became more politically activated, um, someone who just, you know, had strong opinions, but didn't, um, you know, maybe didn't do a lot of action. I saw people around me wanting to act and, and do physical things, not just talk about things and write about things. And um, I saw a lot of people doing that around food, you know, whether it was sending pizzas to protesters or... Um, gathering uh immigrant women to cook food of their own um of their own background both for them to make money but also to talk about you know issues that were important to them and so uh and so i was thinking about these issues and i was gathering these stories and um and talking with my agent and talking to other editors it people i was gathering stories um from the past 100 years from around the globe and then um And then it became very obvious both to me and other people who might be my initial audience that, um, that we need an American story. Like what, what is, let's connect this to American history. And, um, and so that I had already found Eileen's name. And then, um, my agent was really wonderful, um, about, um, Monica Woods about helping me think about pairing these two stories together. And it was so powerful when I started to do this research where they really were initially going to be parallel stories. They're separated by a couple of years, mm-hmm. but of course dealing with uh, so many of the same issues. And then the fact that they intersected in these interesting ways just blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, these stories were meant to be together. And, um, and I, I was just so excited when that happened. And that was something that really didn't, I I didn't know that was going to happen until I was, you know, into the research process. And so this book was going to be, be a thing. Um, But of course, as I'm researching this, you know, voting rights are continually important, for example. um, But they became even more so important. Uh, You know, it was, I kept seeing these, these parallels to headlines in the news as I'm writing this book. And it really, the book really did as the timeline, you know, within, within the actual book itself makes clear it really did happen relatively quickly. I haven't, I've, I did initial research, but the the deep dive into the research um, really happened in the last couple of years. So it was, you know, I guess it just goes to show things that so many people already know, or just to remind us what we already know that uh, preserving voting rights is always important. Um, you know, thinking about, you uh, police brutality has never, that has never gone away. Maybe it isn't part of the dominant narrative that we see headlines around, but it has always been an issue. And so it was just a continual reminder as I was pairing what I'm researching with the headlines of the day. And so um, I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy this is finally going to get a wider audience because these are really important topics that, that have never ceased being important.
1: Yeah. It's clear that one of the goals of the book is to center the story of women in what you kind of describe as, uh, you know, a familiar narrative. We already know in these broad outlines the narrative of the civil rights struggle, uh, but a lot of the women are, are not highlighted or not centered in those stories. Uh, you describe them as overlooked, unsung. Um, <laughs> why do you think those stories have been unsung and, and what do you hope will be the effect of telling them specifically?
0: Yeah, well, like you know, these are these are issues, of course, as as you know, we we both know that have been um, that have been so prominent for so long, and now we're starting to, I think, and I'm using we as a larger um, larger culture, larger society, are starting to give particularly black women leaders their due, but they've always been leaders and always been seen as leaders within um, their communities in different ways. Um, there was one interesting bit of scholarship. Um, around the reasons why and it was in part because um, well so often uh, um, male members of families had to had to leave because it was very dangerous for them to stay in their hometown or um, they were disproportionately murdered often um, and so women often had to take on this leadership role in um, in society in their in their smaller communities um, but also when there when there, were, when there was an opportunity for um, men to lead, particularly after World War II, a lot of times women wanted to uh, support male leaders as well. And they saw it as helping um, Black men kind of have their due in society. And so they were a little bit more willing to take that um, back seat. And that really also aligned with white culture. Um even though Black women had a very prominent uh, leadership role in uh, Black culture prior to that. And so it was this, you know, aligning so that there could be this larger um, role of Black society in the, the dominant white narrative. Um, so there, are, there is some research around that. But also, you know, of course, Black women suffered the double, you know, whammy of being both Black and women. Uh, and so that was another reason that they were so long overlooked for the same reason white women were so long overlooked and black people in general, people of color in general were so long overlooked, you know, because of course this isn't, you know, just a, an issue among black society of, you know, many people of color have faced the same. So, um. So within their uh, cultures, historically, we do see a lot of Black women leaders, but um, you know, we're starting to find these narratives and bring them to, uh, to the, the more dominant narrative to what we're talking about today. And we're starting to be able to give these women our due.
1: Well, before we get into the individual stories of the two women at the heart of this book, uh, can you talk about activist mothering, uh, where that term comes from and what it means in the context of the civil rights struggle, and then especially the the two women at the heart of the the book?
0: Sure. For for sure. I want to give um, total credit to Francois Hamlin, who wrote a book um, focusing on one woman from the 1960s, Vera Mae Pidgey, and she really looked up um, activist mothering, and um, and saw uh, Vera Pidgee as um, she was a mother, and she supported mother to um, a child she birthed, but also she was a mother figure to so many other uh, young people in the Mississippi Delta. And it was um, she was a leader in the NAACP uh, youth uh, youth chapter, and she also did um, a lot of the the ways that she contributed to her uh, her. Her community, more generally, were kind of these typical mothering ways. She helped organize food food drives and and collected these necessities, and um, people felt that they could come to her for support, particularly young people. And so, it's all these it's all these um, you know qualities and skills that we see mothers having, um, but also are so important. More broadly, and so it's definitely um, Dr. Hamlin who made who made this argument, and I really hope to amplify her work um, around that and and apply it to today as well because we see this so often today, where it's like, oh, here's this great, here's this mom who started this activist group, like, but these skills that she's employing, these are really sophisticated uh, skills. These that is why she's able to make such a difference, but we still even today tend to. Um, kind of downplay moms who are organizing as just doing their mom thing instead of really looking at how um, how complicated and uh, and sophisticated and important this work is.
1: Well, as we mentioned, the book is centered around two women, uh, Aileen Quinn from Macomb, Mississippi, uh, and Cleo Silvers in New York. How did you come to recognize these two individuals as important lenses into the, the longer story? When did you first learn about them and, and how did you come to, to see them as important?
0: Yeah, it was really, you know, research, 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 right? And the happy accidents that happen with research. I came across Eileen's story first. Um, I was really looking for um, a woman um, who was in the food industry or or used food in some way who was also a leader whose story wasn't yet told. And so when I dug um, a little bit deeper, I saw that she – she she fit the bill as far as you know the kind of story I wanted to help amplify and um, and then as I research more and more thinking is this person am I going to be able to find enough information about this person and is this um, is this story at you know because unfortunately in as we know in in media. You, um, you can find many. So many stories are so important, but you also need to convince other people that these stories are important, um, important enough to be told. And so, when I did this research, as um, as one renowned uh, historian who really wrote the history of civil rights in Mississippi um, back in the 1980s said, he's like that. What happened in Macomb, which is where Eileen um, lived is the story of civil rights in Mississippi and so in voting rights in Mississippi. And so when I saw that she was, you know, the female leader uh, in this town, that was representative of what was happening in the state, that was also kind of representative of what was happening in the country. I saw that this was definitely a story, uh, a story worth telling. And then when my, um, when my agent and I were talking about ways to, um, to expand the story and thinking about including the, the black Panther party, I was really looking for, you know, similar uh, women in the Black Panther Party. And there, of course, are some, there's a handful of women that uh, a lot of names people would recognize, like Angela Davis, um, Kathleen Cleaver, but I wanted to find someone else who um, who maybe still had her story left to tell. And I lucked upon Cleo because she is lovely. Eileen is um, sadly no longer alive, but Cleo and I have struck up a wonderful friendship and she is, Cleo has not slowed down not even when zoom was introduced into the the equation she is still just um a firecracker and is and is doing so much work around activism i was more than willing to talk to me and um and she of course was very interested in food justice uh during the black panther party and you know forever afterwards and she also is very engaged in healthcare as well and that's um something else that in fact she was part of a documentary that is just coming out um, and about her role in the takeover of Lincoln hospital in the early 1970s. In fact, it's called the takeover. And, um, and so, yeah, so she's still very active and she has this wonderful story that is, that is little told. And so I'm, I'm very honored that um, I get to help tell her story. And, you know, like I said, it, these ended up, they were going to be parallel stories with, with interwoven themes, but they ended up actually, you know, the, the, stories themselves ended up intersecting, which was really wonderful.
1: Yeah, it almost felt like a like a reveal in a mystery novel when you you mentioned that the the person who started the free breakfast in Oakland spent the night at Aileen's house. <laughs>
0: oh my God. I, 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 was just, I was amazed I'm like you you not only went to Macomb, but that was where you stayed. That was where you and he remembered people calling um, while even while he was there and, you know, like harassing phone calls. And um, I mean, it was just really unbelievable. But he was also rather unfazed by having to stay there. Um, I said, you know, wasn't, I mean, it was day, a day or two after her house was bombed. And he's like, well, a lot of houses were bombed and there was no place else to stay. I mean, to him, it was just, of course, that's what you're going to be doing. And it just, it, You know, one, I could not, fully, you know, understand that, but it, it's all the more um, important to try to highlight uh, how unfortunately normalized um, this was, this violence was, and how much um, this had to just be something to be reconciled with on a, on a daily basis by so many activists and so many people in the Black community. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it makes sense that these two stories would would run parallel. They both highlight, as you say, uh, that food was used by Black women as a potent and necessary ideological tool in both the rural South and urban North to create lasting social and political change. You write really eloquently about food and power, especially in the hands of women. So maybe talk more about how This food work is kind of a paradox, right? On one hand, it sort of adheres to some traditional gender roles, but it's also a way to understand uh, the role of women as leaders, uh, especially in the Black community. Talk a little bit more about that.
0: Sure. I think one story that really illustrates this is um, when women, Aline or other women that um, worked for her and with her, would bring food to the activists, who, the young activists, who were jailed in Mississippi and um, especially after um, after the walkout, um, which is when uh, some a bunch of teens were activated and young people, including um, members of SNCC, were activated um, to walk out in protest of, um, of another young um, activist who was jailed um, for for a sit-in, um, and so these women would be allowed in and they would bring these elaborate meals. And even, uh, the famous leader, uh, Robert Paris Moses, he would write about, um, just how, how delicious this food was. And you could imagine, I mean, a, a soul food feast, um, you know, tinged by the, the seafood of the Delta, right. Which is also of course part of soul food. And, um, and they would bring in this this food that would just fill, the smell would fill up the the jail. And they were probably eating better than the, the people working at the jail. And then these women, because they were so, um, you know, underestimated, they would be allowed to stay there. And they would make all these plans. They were planning for how to educate all of these students who were kicked out of high school, um, you know, who were going to, who wanted to get their diploma who wanted to, many of them eventually go on to college and how, what were they going to do with it? And so they planned these freedom schools. They planned other, um, other actions, other civil rights actions and, and voting rights actions. And they did this because these jailers are like, what, are, oh, these women are just dropping off food. No big deal. But, um, they were able to continue their work for, um, for a month because, this is, you know, they underestimated these women. And um, and you see this so many other times. Eileen was someone who was very outspoken. Um, she was a, a single um, a single parent, um, so there wasn't a, a man in her life um, who, you know, could could kind of be the leader. It was really, um, she was the leader. She was the one who ran her restaurant and, um, and many people knew that. So um, for a while, I think she was kind of underestimated, although she definitely ended up becoming the president of the NAACP, local NAACP chapter, for example. And um, obviously when her house was bombed, um, you know, kind of at the peak of Freedom Summer, it was clear that um, people saw her as a threat and saw her as a, as a leader, so that's also an interesting paradox: is that when you are acknowledged as being a leader, then you are even more in danger. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of intersecting tensions here that um, that women have long had to deal with. Of you know, how can I work under the radar um, to get my work done, but also I'm I'm not fully appreciated for the leadership and the skills and and, and what I'm doing in the community.
1: Yeah. Back up a little bit with the story of, of Aline Quinn, uh, introduce listeners to her story.
0: Who is she and and where does that story start? Oh, she's, um, she's amazing. And I was able to, um, I'm so thankful. Some, um, folks who had volunteered for SNCC during Freedom Summer in 1964 ended up going back a few decades later and, um, and interviewing her. And they only used a snippet of this interview, but they did about an hour interview. And so I was able to, this is the only, the only footage I can find of her in, you know, even among her family. And so I was able to um, integrate some of these stories she was telling. Um, she grew up, um, she didn't grow up in, in Macomb, but she ended up there as a young woman and she took over a restaurant that her brother had, um, had started and he also had a farm. And so this made sense. It was one of the few um, businesses that somebody that a woman could, could run. And um, she'd also grown up um, with her grandparents on a farm and it was, you know, fully a subsistence um, living, but not in a negative way in this positive way where there were grapes and there were crops and they never really felt like they wanted for food. And so she was this amazing cook, amazing chef and, um, and just always very forthright in her, um, in her opinions. She had, um, you know, she was a single mom with uh, four children, and um, and she just really, wa- you know, very much saw the injustice of what was happening around her. And she wasn't going to sit back and allow people to tell her what she could and couldn't do. Uh, so she, she would openly flaunt um, certain conventions, such as when the activists came to town, the white activists, um, she would feed them at her restaurant south of the border. And that was something that just black and white people did not eat together. And it was very feared by white supremacists. They saw this as something very intimate and that when you start, um, you know, mixing and I'm using scare quotes here over, um, over a table, then, you know, what's going to come of that. There's going to be even more integration. And so this was something, this is one of the reasons that, um, that restaurants were very much the site of so many sit-ins and so many other, um, civil rights actions. And so, um, yeah, from the very beginning, she's like, "Of course, if you are hungry, you are you will come." She's saying this to the activists: "You will come and you will eat here at South of the Border," and that was a place um, where uh, Curtis Hayes Muhammad now um, was like, "Oh yeah, I never I never paid her. She was always would always um, you know feed me for free." But then Curtis uh, Muhammad told me as well about how and her and Aileen's daughter confirmed um, that she was also a bootlegger. Um, Mississippi was dry and it was very, it was so common to have, um, you could only have low alcohol beer. That was the only thing that was legal. And it was so common to have, um, illegal liquor and that, that there was even someone at the state level who kind of had their own tax on it. So, um, you know, it was very much acknowledged, but it was also this way that the state could further um, control and oppress people like Eileen particularly black restaurant owners. Um, If they wanted to exert pressure on this thing that was technically illegal, even though everybody did it, they could do that. And they did do that. They often um, ticketed her uh, for having illegal liquor. Um, so, you know, her daughter, Jacqueline was very, um, very proud of her mother and said this, she did what she had to do to survive. And, um, and you know, this, she in no way felt ashamed of it. And it was a source of power. Um, and this is where people knew that they, um, they could go and they could trust her and they could work with her. And she also ended up working with so many other people, um, who were part of this, Bootlegging, both white and black, um, of this bootlegging industry, and so that also gave her a sense of power because she is responsible for a number of people's livelihoods, including the cops that she would pay off um, to kind of turn a blind eye, and that was all standard practice. But of course, it gets mired in ways that people could manipulate and oppress other people if they, if they so desired.
1: When you argue that it's her restaurant and her other businesses that in some ways insulate her from retaliation from white people uh, in Macomb. So she had this ability and you kind of remarked that she recognized she has a bit of a privilege and an ability to be more active and more visible because of this independence she has as a black business owner and, as you mentioned, as an unpartnered uh woman. Um talk talk a little bit about how she
0: she uses that privilege or how or where that comes from. Sure. Economic sanctions is what it's wisely called. Um that, you know, one probably one could even argue the most common way that um the black community was um was oppressed and kind of again scare quotes kept in line by white supremacy um in their mind is that they if you know black or white um White people were so often the owners of property. So, oh, if you do something that upsets me, I am—I will evict you, and—and that you have no recourse, zero recourse. Um, I am your employer. You are going to go down to the courthouse and try to register to vote. I'll fire you, and then you won't have a job. Um, and this happened all—all all the time. And people were very afraid um, because, of course, they're there's not a ton of jobs. Um, it's a relatively rural community, even among these towns or small cities, It still is, you know, relatively small and um, insular. And so the fact that she had, um, a job that she was her own boss, um, and it was relatively stable and she was able to, and then she ended up, she was able to buy her own home. Um, and so she couldn't be evicted from that. Uh, She did not own the property that, um, that South of the border was uh, located in, but, Uh, She had a good relationship with her landlord to the point where he even tried to defend her and he didn't evict her until um, the KKK uh, or the KKs, as they referred to them, um, threatened his family. And then he reluctantly uh, evicted her. Um, But, yeah, she she had a lot of ways that she could. She diversified her businesses. She had a beauty parlor, parlor. She eventually, you know, after. Um, The 60s, she opened up a a hotel, and so there was a lot of ways that she was financially um, more independent than other people. Although there were, of course, pressure points. But I found this as well. There was another woman who volunteered was from the north part of Mississippi, Freddie Biddle, um, and she also was saying that her family felt more insulated as well from these economic sanctions because her father owned his own business. They owned their uh, they owned their home as well, and so she recognized that she was more able to volunteer for SNCC and she um, even stayed with Eileen um, in the summer of 65 doing more voting rights work because uh, she was able to, her family had a little bit more insulation from these economic sanctions. But certainly this is a major way that people were um, were manipulated and oppressed. And um, and Vera Pidgey, it should be noted as well, You know, the activist mother um, that Dr. Hamlin talked about, she also owned her own business. And so that was another way that she was insulated and able to really be a leader. Um, And so there are all these barriers, particularly for women who are less likely to own their own businesses, less likely to have, um, you know, their own property that they, that these women were able to be um, leaders. Um, But there's often these barriers in the way of them um, being the kind of leaders that society more broadly recognizes. Well, she certainly
1: doesn't emerge unscathed, right? Uh, the the house that she owns is bombed, and she isn't uh, is evicted from that restaurant space. Um, but she gets a chance to meet with Lyndon Johnson uh, after the
0: bombing. Talk about that moment! Uh, oh my gosh, that was amazing because I saw it mentioned again in a sentence, and I'm like, wait, it's at you know I I would see the, her story was always represented in in a sentence or two. Her she was a leader, her house was bombed, and then sometimes they'd say, and then she met with the president the next day or a day later. I'm like, is this is this true? So I I, um I I kept trying to find the, the true story and this is, you know, the story of research, right? And um it did seem in fact that yes, um she was sent to talk to um the president, you know, and then, you know, within days afterwards. Um, And then I found the recording of her um, meeting with him. um, She met with him with other women that whose homes were also bombed in Macomb. And Macomb was called that this was at the end of the summer of 64. It was called um, the bombing capital of the world. I mean, it was the place where, yeah, there were going to be bombs, you know, not nightly, but every few days, every night you went to bed wondering if you were going to hear an explosion in the black community. And so she, um, yeah, she, she had her, she went to, um, DC. She was at first told that he was not going to have time to meet with her. Of course there was continual, um, you know, NAACP, people from SNCC, many people were trying to get audiences with the president saying, you need to do something. I mean, there is, there, there is violence. There is, um, you know, like illegal so many illegal actions happening against these protesters during the uh, summer of 64 and of course before um you need to step in but it was an election year and even though he was very likely to win um he still did not want to anger the southern democrats at the time and so he really you know kind of was hands off but he did agree to meet with aline and two other women and she um got to tell her story and it was um and it was really, I think, very powerful for her. And um, I was so excited to be able to find that clip and share it with uh, her daughter Jacqueline, um, who who had never heard it and didn't know she was nine, I think, the summer of '64. And so, um, and so she. She didn't, you know, she has a child's memory of this time and what her mother would later tell her, but um, she was really pleased to be able to, uh, to hear that actual recording of her mother and the president. And I think it, in so many ways, just um, affirmed this experience for her. I mean, he didn't, he, he didn't exactly step in and, and do something immediately afterwards, although um, this was a moment of an, an inflection as well for Freedom Summer and for in Macomb of saying, you know, there's going to be martial law local law enforcement, if you do not, um, you know, rein this in. And of course, within days, people were arrested. So it wasn't as if they didn't know or couldn't find out who the people who were causing these bombings. So it was so clearly, I mean, as is obvious, I think to anyone hearing this story today, it was so clearly a matter of will and, a and, and implicit law enforcement, um, you know, allowing this to happen. Um, so even though she didn't feel, these women didn't really feel that the president, you know, was actively on their side afterwards, um, there was pretty immediate action, um, that was in part from, they did have allies in the justice department. Um, and so who could kind of go around the FBI or pressure the FBI, who, as we know through the book was not exactly, um, uh, you know, very active in, in helping to support these activists and keep them safe. Um, and so that was, I think, an, an important moment and, and really showed a big change um, um, in what was happening, like to affirm a lot of what was happening for Freedom Summer and eventually led to the changes that they were that they were looking for. We took it all. We brought them to our land,
1: an endless night. The story of Cleo Silvers uh, is offered as another example of one of those undersung women, uh, their roles in political action, especially in the story of the Black Panthers. Uh, So who is Cleo Silvers? How does she come to be a member of the Black Panther Party?
0: Uh, Yeah, so Cleo grew up in Philadelphia, and um, and she told me this great story of she was working at an all-night diner and came home from her shift at dawn and was just kind of mindlessly watching TV and... Uh, saw an an ad for the VISTA program, um, which, which was like AmeriCorps, um, like early AmeriCorps. And she just thought, Hey, you know, I just graduated from high school. This is something that, um, yeah, I want to get out. I want to, this is the kind of thing I want to do. And so she went for training and she didn't realize it until, um, you know, kind of when she was in there that she would be the second cohort and she was the first black woman um of the the vista volunteers and she was sent to the bronx and um and so when she first got there she and another woman a white woman they were paired together and they were sent to some of um you know these most disadvantaged schools to help create after school programs and just help the community and it became very clear uh and this is um early mid nineteen sixties, it became very clear of all of these issues in the in the Bronx, in the South Bronx that um needed attention. And so she had to, for example, get permission for some of these um uh, for these students to be able to go um to be able to attend her after school program and she wanted to take them places um, like the comic book store and things like that. And so she had to go to their apartments and she would go to their apartments and see that there are these gaping holes in the ceiling. Um, You know, she would feel how hot it was in the summer and how freezing it was in the winter. Um, You know, she would see rats. And so she became, um, because this is the kind of person she is, she's amazing. Um, She became, you know, very active in, um, in, in larger uh, neighborhood issues. And in fact, she was even recruited by um, city code, well, recruited, you know, subtly recruited by city code um, enforcers telling her and teaching her and her partner how to identify code violations and even kind of coaching them of how they could get the, um, the tenants organized so that they could create um a united front and and start to um either well they ended up some in some cases taking over their building um and and getting some of these issues addressed because it was very unsafe and unsanitary and um yeah these landlords were just completely delinquent landlords and so she was becoming more and more interested um and involved in neighborhood stuff and she was even aware of the black panther party she would go and uh, they offered free karate classes at the dojo next to their uh, office and um and then she after vista she ended up getting a job um at the only local hospital and they were, she was part of the union there and they were planning, um, actions to, um, it was a very unsafe place. They, it was known as the uh, the butcher shop. Um, and there were many, um, it wasn't just, uh, prim- it was a black and, um, and Hispanic neighborhood. Um, and so they didn't have, so many people who only spoke Spanish. Uh, they did not have translation services. There were many things that they lacked. And so they were planning these actions and the Black Panthers were there to help support uh, as they were for many of these kinds of issues. They um, they would go and they would lend their support and their organization and people power. And they recruited her and they said, we want you. You Here was this young person. She was in her early 20s, I think at this point, and she's just volunteering to do everything. And they said, go down and, um, and sign up. And so she was so... Um, honored uh, because she saw them as other leaders in the neighborhood. And so she ran down and signed up and she became a black Panther. And this was um, 1969 and they had just started the free breakfast for children program. Um, It was started at the late 68 um, in California and expanded uh, countrywide in early 1969. And so she, that would be one, one of the things that almost everybody had to do was volunteer their mornings, um, at, at the free breakfast for children program. And so she became very engaged in, in food justice issues around that, but she just saw that as one of a myriad of issues, um, that were affecting the local neighborhood. And so I think a lot of times people, um, tend to know more about the, uh, free breakfast for children program because for reasons I'm sure we'll discuss in a moment, uh, but you know, there, that was just one of many programs, survival programs that the Panthers called it um, just thinking, just like housing and healthcare, you know, other issues. Cleo was involved in, you know, uh, having adequate food was just one of of these issues that was just, you know, harming this entire community.
1: When you describe that the beginning of those programs as kind of a conflict between this popular image of the Black Panthers as hyper-masculine, these armed young men, uh, and then this softer family-oriented programs like healthcare, housing, public safety, breakfast, Um, how are those, I use feminized, uh, programs initially received? Um, And then what's their
0: lasting legacy? Sure. And I will even, um, back up a touch and give you a little bit about the history of the Black Panther Party and and those roles. Um, so you have, um, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale who created the Black Panthers and it was as many people, I think, know, because there is this popular narrative, um, of the Black Panther Party that was perpetuated by the media, influenced greatly by the FBI, um, you know telling the story that they wanted to the public to hear but you know in especially in the beginning it wasn't completely different than what um you know these original leaders had envisioned because they were reacting to um to the to to the violence against black men in the neighborhood um in particular and so initially they did they they wanted to to look like a force. They, they wore you know, what people think of as the black Panther kind of uniform. They did carry guns legally. Um, and you know, much like people pull out their phones today, they would go and they would stand guard when they saw, um, you know, an, a, a black man or woman being harassed by the police or arrested by the police, they would read them their, They would like read their rights. Um, not the Miranda rights, but say, this is what you're allowed to do. Um, police and we're watching you. Um, And they would stand there as support and, um, and they did it legally and they wanted to show that they were not going to be intimidated anymore. Um, and then when they began to get a lot of recruits and, um, they were targeted very quickly on the West coast by law enforcement, local and the FBI. Um, but they pretty quickly and always, it was always in there, um, in, in their mission statement to support the entire community. This is, you know, it wasn't, some people kind of accuse them of doing, of making this shift to the, to the survival programs as being tactical or manipulative, but it was always something they were interested in, you know, supporting, um, you know, Non violence from police was was only one part of it, and and that was from the very very beginning, the very inception. And so um, they really began to put in the in 1968. They started to put even more effort, especially as they they grew very quickly um, to chapters around the country. And they would have um, you know kind of edicts from the central office of uh, saying now you're going to everyone should start these kinds of programs. And so the free breakfast for children program was something, um, and it was and this is how the two story. Tied together in some ways is that they they really look to. We didn't mention um, Ella Baker, who was this amazing um, female leader she started SNCC. She was um, a leader in the NAACP. And her style of leadership was you have, and this is something that, um, that Curtis, um, Hayes Muhammad said to me. And, you know, one of my very first lessons in, in when I was doing the research for this book, you need to talk to the people you need to hear, you cannot go in. And this is what we now call kind of like the white savior complex, right? Even though it was not all white people going in, it was just people from different places. You need to go in and say, well, how can I help you? um what is it that you want um that that will make your life better and um and so snick was able to uh kind of help teach the Black Panthers that this is what Ella Baker taught us and using um father Neil Earl Neil's, uh, connection to the community he was able to really talk to the the neighborhood the people in the neighborhood the community and say what can I help you with and they were like I you know, I don't always have food to feed my kids or, um, you know, maybe I leave too early for work and I'm not able to get them to school. And so this, the free breakfast for children program was something that came out of that. And, um, And so they started it and it was so popular. It just grew exponentially in the beginning. And that was, you know, so that was kind of the, the signature um, program that was spread all around the country. But then in different places like New York um, City, for example, the housing was such an issue that this was also another local problem they would it was obvious the Clio but if you were to talk to anyone this is something that they wanted help with and so they really got engaged in um, housing for example in New york City and other cities might have different more localized um, issues you know but there's so many things that are common and food security is something that's so so very common and so it was something that um once it became so popular among people and um, it was also the thing that brought in more parents who were maybe Getting this propaganda from um, law enforcement. And then law enforcement, the FBI had this direct route to media. Um, It was very easy for media, especially if you don't want to have to work hard or think critically, to just say, oh, hey, FBI, yeah, give me your talking points. I'll just turn it into an article. And that happened a lot. And they did not interrogate it. And so there were a lot of, um, and plus we have you know, we have racism, we have a primarily white and primarily, um, male, um, almost exclusively, um, group of reporters around the country, right. Who are, um, just reporting on these stories that feel true to them. It's reinforcing what they already think or know about different groups. And so that, um, created a a vast biased reporting, outright lies and propaganda about the black Panthers. Um, and particularly trying to disparage this program that was becoming so popular and was changing people's minds. Um, and they were also very explicitly political, and that was another reason that um, J. Edgar Hoover, um, leader, longtime leader of the FBI, was so uh, afraid of them, is because they're telling people why. Why should you not have food? the The people down the street who have more money, the white people down the street, have food. Why do we not have food? Do you think that not enough food exists? No, it is the will of the people in power. And so once you start questioning that, um, you know, it got who were very worried about his position of power. And, um, and so he created, um, even, you know, even more barriers for them to do their job. He literally had his, um, had, had law enforcement urinating on food, rendering it, um, you know, unable to be eaten, um, confiscating it, um, you know, telling kids that they, or, and parents that they would be arrested or poisoned if they go to this, um, to this free breakfast program. So it was very much disparaged and, um, more than disparaged. And, and he called it, he called the breakfast program, um, you know, the, the greatest threat and he phrased it, framed it as the greatest threat, you know, to, you know, to, to the country. I mean, that's a little hyperbolic, but what he really meant was the greatest threat to his power. And, um, and so I, I think that can't be overstated of how powerful it was, to feed children breakfast and show them that food is a right and not a privilege.
1: Yeah, you—it's not just food, right? You've already noted that it's this opportunity for political education, not just for the children but for the the parents who are are leaving them there as well. But you also write kind of movingly about how it is a place of love and care uh, and attention and uh, kind of that emotional work that's happening uh talk a little bit more about that part
0: where cleo (laughs) cleo said and we've talked a lot i was just like make me feel like i'm there in the moment in this breakfast program and she said more than once she said they just wanted hugs they wanted hugs all the time and um and it was also i i think i haven't explicitly said this yet um about two-thirds of black panther party members in new york city but you know this holds true pretty much around the country um We're women, and we don't, you know, think of that. We don't picture females, women, women women-identifying people as being um, the leaders. And they were in charge of so many of these projects. Um, Maybe they weren't all mothers themselves, but certainly these projects would fall under the activist mothering umbrella of saying, you know, oh, I want to, you know, create a a safe place for you to live, food for you to eat, um, clothes for you to wear, and um, and this was they this was what they focused on. This was primarily what they did, um, was provide, um, this kind of support to the community. And, um, and it was primarily women and it was a place she was speaks of, of such, you know, such love and care. And they would be, they would talk to these kids, help them with their homework, but they would also hear, you know, oh, so-and-so is being evicted or so-and-so is sick, or, you know, they would hear, or so-and-so is mom is on drugs. You know, they would hear these issues firsthand from the children and be able to address them as they could individually, but also identify these patterns. And, um, you know, drug addiction, um, is, is one of them. And, and the fact that it was, um, she tells this other, Cleo tells this other story and she became interested in, in, um, and active in, in drug addiction, um, uh, remediation where she tells a story where you could see the cops who would confiscate drugs from someone on the street and then sell them from their cop car. And so, you know, to her, it was so clear that these cops were keeping people addicted. Like this was part of the plan and it was happening everywhere. Um, like on every, you know, like around almost every street corner, she describes it as. And so this was very much, um, yeah, helping these people survive and possibly thrive as well and helping them see not just in the immediate moment, here's something I could do to help feed you right now, but how can we change the system and how can we get um, the community thinking about a different reality and becoming engaged in a different reality? And that's something else that um, the, you know, the Panthers were so, I could say this, they're so young. I teach college, right? They're, you know, the age So many of my college students. And um, you know, the Panthers now will admit that they were so idealistic, which I think you have to be, otherwise you just look at these problems and say, Oh, they're too big. They also worked so hard, so tirelessly. I mean, this was their life, is to serve their communities. It really was. And um, but they really did think that they would have revolution in um in their life. And, you know, many things have changed. As we know, many things have not changed. Um, but it really took people who had this vision and had this ability to see these are the things that people did need to survive. And, and this is the information, not just giving them the food, but giving them the information, giving them the hope, giving them this vision of what the future could be. And, um, and it was really very holistic in that way. Um, even though it was for a relatively short amount of time, I mean, this was really, you know, two years ish, um, you know, roughly 1969 to 71 was kind of the the thriving moment of the Black Panther Party in New York City, for example. So much was accomplished, and um, also that that can't be understated. And I think that that is just not known enough by um, you know, in the larger narrative. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, and you mentioned this a moment ago, uh, but one of the moments that that most struck me was realizing that that what the Black Panther Party especially represented was that neglect of government and that their success in feeding children was proof that if the government had the will to do it, they could. Um, And so while the government takeover of free breakfast it took out one of the party's most powerful arms, uh, and maybe led to, uh, I think you kind of allude in the book to their waning influence. Um, so say, say something about that, about how that, um, how losing the free breakfast might've affected their, their influence.
0: Well, you know, in New York city, for example, and this also kind of affected, um, the party more broadly, there was this very direct campaign to undermine everything that they were doing. And um, and this is not to say that, you know, the Black Panther Party was, was blameless or never did anything illegal. Um, I just don't focus on any of those stories. And also those stories are so tainted by... The propaganda that was out there, um, but everything I do assert is, you know, absolutely true about these survival programs and, and how that was very much the focus of um, the Black Panther Party in New York City, but also elsewhere. Um, so what happened was um, there was this v- through many there were many informers and um, in yet from the FBI and um, the New York um, and local law enforcement in New York City, for example. I'm telling a New York City story, but there were around the country that um, to the point where they didn't even know who each other were. And so you'd have these informers, as many informers um, who were, who would say something inflammatory to try and get other black Panthers kind of um, you'd say, yeah, let's do that. Let's go, you know, bomb this or kill those people. And then the other informers would report back that a different black Panther was saying, we need to bomb someone. And so they were trying to, Arrest people trying to get the Black Panthers in in trouble. Arrested, um, convicted even for these major offenses. That was not that, what they what their primary or even that was not something that they wanted to do. And so um, they created this case around um, bombing, um, potential bombing, um, bombing that didn't including a a bombing that they were planning allegedly and a bombing that um, that didn't happen because it was with fake bombs that an informer um, had had planted uh, uh, a spy had planted. And so they ended up arresting. um, Well, they had initially had arrest warrants um, for 21 people um, and they called them the Panther 21. And so this was huge and splashy and also added to all of this propaganda of saying, here are um, 21 black Panthers who were planning this bombing of the Brooklyn or of the New York Botanical Garden. And it doesn't even make sense. Why would they do that? Right. But, um, and so they rounded up all these Panthers clearly with insider knowledge. Um, and then they held them, they did a lot of illegal things. They held them in all these different places. They didn't allow them access to, um, their lawyers. Um, and they did a lot of things to create, um, you know, to try and win this case, that was, it turned out, it took a long time. It ended up being the, um, at the time it was the largest case ever in New York city. Um, and they ended up trying them in, it took over a year and they were eventually all found innocent, not guilty within like, let, you know, very short amount of time. So it was clear it wasn't even a deliberation or it was clear that they were not they were not guilty. But over the course of this, it took a lot of resources. It took resources. um, They were continually trying to raise money for the lawyers. Um, They were trying to put their own story out there of that. This is not true. So they were already being disparaged in the press. Um, It created this big rift with between the New York um, chapter and the national chapter. And so all of this really was um, working as planned by you know, the, the the larger power structure to dilute their influence and take resources away from all this community building that they were doing. And so that is what ended up happening. The New York um, chapter was was kicked out of, of the National Black Panthers um, because it was becoming too costly. And there were also ideal, ideological rifts were happening over this. And so that was... Pretty much the 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 beginning of the downfall of the New York chapter. Even though they went on to serve breakfast for a number of years and have a lot of local influence for a number of years, um, the national chapter. It also, I I think this idea, like this, um, you know, this ideal thinking. It became clear that this this revolution wasn't going to happen as quickly. And they wanted to at first have revolution outside of the legal system. And then by the early 1970s, you see um, some Black Panther members on the West coast were starting to run for local politics, which, um, you know, also kind of created a, a a rift among people saying, I thought we were going to work outside the system, not within the system. And so, I mean, I think just the realities of, of what they were trying to do kind of caught up with um, what was possible. Um, And when you think about it, though, I mean, they had like the full weight of the government and the media, you know, trying to stop them. And the fact that they were so active for so long and did accomplish so much was really unbelievable when you think like, you have the FBI actively working to stop you. And you still were able to do these things for a really long time. So, you know, one might say that, you know, the government won, the FBI won, but they you know, have so many lasting legacies and that's part of my goal of this book is to is to really highlight these legacies. Um one other you know, there's a couple in healthcare that I just want to highlight quickly. Um uh Cleo, um after this Panther twenty one rift, um she Spent um, ended up focusing more of her energies with the Young Lords, which was kind of the Puerto Rican equivalent of the Black Panthers, um, also in the Bronx, and um, and that's where she did a lot of work with um, you know addiction help, and she was still working at Lincoln Hospital, and um, and so she was doing um, work around making that better for um, the community, and she also ended up helping to write the patient's bill um of rights which we all have encountered um it, almost every place when we encounter healthcare. And, um, that was something she helped author a watered down version. She would always say, she wants to make that clear. She wanted more demands, but, um, you know to think that they were at the forefront of that. Also, they, um, the Black Panthers were among the first people, um, bringing acupuncture, um, as a therapy, um, outside of the Chinese community. And it was actually illegal in New York city at the time. And so they, um, and then I have a friend who's writing, um, Sarah DiGregorio is writing a book about, um, I call it the revolutionary history of nursing and it will be out in a couple of years. But um, she's also drawn to the Black Panther Party as looking at revolutionary nursing. They were doing community health in ways that is still considered so effective and is so rarely done, where you go door to door and you um, test Iron levels and for and lead and and sickle for sickle cell anemia and provide um, information around healthcare that you're not getting other places. They advocated for research on these issues that were really affecting um, this black community. And, um, and doing it in this way that was super accessible to people who were, as we has been in the conversation more recently, were very uh, wary of um, organized healthcare for obvious and good reasons. And so bringing this nursing, bringing this healthcare to their door in a way that felt really accessible um, and advocating for healthcare issues that were affecting this population. That was also something that Black Panthers and the Young Lords did um, and is, you know, really important, I think, to highlight around their legacy.
1: Yeah. In the final chapter, you, you kind of move us into the present with the election of uh, Kamala Harris, uh, also known as Mamala, another hint at that um, activist mothering, uh, and the work of Stacey Abrams in voting rights and access. So clearly there's an unfinished work uh, of the civil rights struggle um, and a, a, and a, again, more to tell about the story of women uh, in that continued work. So how do you see that, that line between Aileen Quinn, Cleo Silver, Lots of the other women like them, and then these contemporary figures.
0: You know, I asked a lot of folks, um, especially as I was doing more research, um, more interviewing, and we got closer to the election. And um, and I was asking people, what you know, what do you think? What do you want to happen? What are your hopes? What do you think is going to happen? And um, you know, by and large, of course, people were very you know hopeful and excited because most of this interviewing happened before the election. Um, some happened afterwards and of course people were, were thrilled, you know, but other people too, still, and this was a critique of, um, of, of the vice president is that, you know, and, and even Biden, you know, he wasn't the super progressive candidate at the moment, um, that people wanted. And, um, and there's still some black Panthers who want to work outside the system and still don't think that you're going to see the the um, progressive politics that, that they have been fighting for for decades still hasn't been realized. Um, and they weren't sure that this, um, you know, this administration was going to realize it. Although I think that I haven't spoken to some of these people since then, but um, I think that they might be in some ways surprised um, at some of the progressive actions, but of course there's always critiques. Um, but. I certainly see with someone like Stacey Abrams having read her books just for my own interest in addition to this project um, you see this you know groundswell of work that starts with the local and I think and and I think we also saw this with um the mutual aid networks. this was a term that introduced to me in the research of this book and i only saw elsewhere in the last year and a half um this idea of mutual aid this idea of communities helping each other supporting each other thinking about what a community needs which is so this is this is what the black panthers did and they called it mutual aid and they called it community organizing Um, but now we're seeing these terms more explicitly and once you can name it then you can go back and trace the history and you can learn from that and you can replicate it. Um, and so I, I see very much that happening now. Um, you know, part of it is with um, the administration change, but part of it is just where are, we have been in the last year and a half. Um, you know, so I, and I see a lot of black women in particular leading these charges because they have been leaders, they have the skill set. Um, but then I look at someplace like New York city and um, you know, I certainly don't have enough information to, Fully dissect what happened in the mayoral race, for example. But, um, you know, I think we, many people can agree that there's still this lack of trust in female leaders, um, we're edging forward, but when are we really going to give them the top jobs? Um, and you know, I still hope to write some articles about it and point to, continue to point this out of saying, you know these are really important skill sets that these women have, whether it's from being a mom or from being a socialized woman or just be, for being who they are and, and the roles that they've all you know that they've held, the di- very diverse roles that they've held. Um, this is leadership. And it's been shown again and again that di- diverse groups get more done. women leaders are effective. And um, there's still, yeah, something in, you know, the larger, you know, social pressure that seems to not yet always see women as capable leaders. Um, But I will say I have... Um, eternal faith, because I teach uh, young college, early college students, and they um, continue to wow me and impress me and give me hope for the future. I'm teaching at NYU. Um, this year I have a new um, sub role where I have a, a cohort of students who are interested in justice and inequality. Um, and so we do programming around that and they take my class that's um, that you know has that as a theme. And they're all so like active and have this clear goal at age 18 19 of what they want to do and how they want to help change the world and um, in a I'm very proud that of my class of 15 14 um, they hold half of the um, elected leadership roles in their dorm of 700 <laughs> and I was like whoa you all are movers and shakers and they're really amazing and it's um primarily female identifying um, and and they're just they give me hope so I was like you know what we need to step out of the way and let these young people take over because they have a great vision. And I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm very proud of the work that they're already doing and can only imagine them continue to do amazing things.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's a really good connection to make of, of just how you've already mentioned how exceptionally young uh, a lot of the people that you talk about in the book are. Uh, and I can agree having spent some, some days, with some first year students. <laughs> they're going to do some stuff. Uh, my final question, which is a cruel thing to ask someone whose book is going to be published on the day that this podcast comes out. Uh, but what projects are you working on next?
0: <laughs> oh, I'm actually really excited about this other project. And I'm okay, I have actively um, not let it distract me from this this great book that I'm so excited to get into the world. Uh, so this summer when it was kind of this lull where you're not quite ready to do the promo stuff, but you're ready to jump into another project. I did a lot of research on, um, anti-fascist women during world war two. And so I am, um, working on a book project, uh, around anti-fascist, um, women leaders. Uh, I saw a lot of similar, just like I was saying earlier about you see these headlines coming up, um, that are so resonant, to the past in this story. Um, you know, in the, luckily not so much in the last year, but in the last couple of years, I saw a lot of headlines that came up from, um, you know, what is fascism and how it was used, um, to oppress so many and, um, how people resisted that. And I actually, one of those previous book projects where Aline's story initially lived, there was another story of one of these anti-fascist Italian women, um, and so I'm going back to her story and other women like her and drawing the connections to today and what we can learn from that um, also around activism and um, and and changing the power structure where we can. But the amazing thing about these women is that um, so many of them – so fascism run by pretty much entirely men um, – regime, we can, we all know that. Um, after World War II, so many of these women, uh, first of all, women had the right to vote in Italy for the first time, and so many of these women became part of that new government. So there's a similar through line there as to how they helped create this um, this new free Italy post World War II.
1: Well, today we've been talking to Suzanne Cope about her new book, Power Hungry Women of the Black Panther Party and Freedom Summer and Their Fight to Feed of Movement. Uh, it is out now. Go and find it. <laughs> thanks, Suzanne, for talking to us today.
0: Thank you so much. And thanks to the amazing women um, who gave me their time and energy and who gave everyone um, their lifetime of work. This is really who this book is is for. Yeah. And thank you for listening.